Have you ever felt isolated and alone? I think that this is something that many of us have felt at some point or another over our life, but probably especially so in the last year. It's a feeling of exile. It's a feeling of being in a strange and foreign land. Things that, that, that once seemed so normal have been so upended that, that, that they no longer do seem normal. And some of you have experienced this far more than, than I have. But we find ourselves doing things that, that we never thought we would and not doing things that, that we never thought we would before. And, and I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I feel like this exile uh, that we feel, this isolation feels, I find myself looking a lot like this. I'm just yelling at a volleyball, just not sure what is going on. We're, we're in exile. And well, I think that it can be funny that we feel a little bit like Chuck Nolan from, is Tom, played by Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway, spoiler alert, the exile won't be here to last. There will be a return. Good morning. My name is Hunter Upton. I'm one of the pastors here at Get Well Church. So glad that however and wherever you're joining us, you're here and you're worshiping with us this morning. Today we're continuing in our series where we're looking at the redemptive story of the Bible, how Jesus, like a thread, thread being the name of our series, like Jesus is like a thread that is woven out throughout all of Scripture. And so this is our redemptive narrative, the arc of the redemptive story that we've been talking through since the beginning of the year. We began with creation uh, there at the bottom. Uh, we began with creation and we looked at how God is so good and he created all uh, that we know and all that we see and called it very good. And we've walked each and every week till last week we saw kind of the climax of what had happened with the fall. That sin had entered into the world and just this downward spiral and God's people found themselves so alienated from God because of their sin that they were even driven out of the land. And so Last week, Jonathan Wallace, our lead pastor, gave a very convicting message. If you haven't listened to it, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, on how the Israelites and us uh, must choose hope, how we have to call to mind the truths of God, even when we can't see them in the moment. It's important for us to remember God's faithfulness in the past, but also his promise for the future. So this morning, where we find ourselves on that uh, ark is at return. And so where do we find ourselves uh, with this? How, how did the Israelites feel? How did God's people feel at the end of exile? And here's the way that one of the psalmists put it in Psalm 137. He writes, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Another way of stating their question is this. What has happened to the promises of God? This, this promise of descendants as numerous as the stars and the sky and the sand of the sea, of, of a land that we could inherit and possess and of being a blessing to all the nations. What happened to this promise that there would be a king who would sit on the throne forever? And if God's people are tattered and scattered, how in the world is this promise that he's made to Abraham and David ever going to be fulfilled? 
Well, first, I want us to recall how they got to this strange and foreign land in the first place. And if you've been reading along in our uh, Bible reading plan uh, since we began it, uh, we read back in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where God laid out these blessings and curses for God's people for their obedience or disobedience to following him. And these blessings and curses really probably were more of a foreshadowing than I think they ever realized at all, because God is essentially saying, when you're faithful, this is what will happen, and things will go well with you. And when you are unfaithful, this is what is going to happen. It will follow, uh, and and things aren't going to go as well. Uh, By breaking the covenant, they're assured. In in this uh, chapter, in those 28 and 29, they're assured that, that they will be taken captive by other nations, and they will be exiled from the land that had been given to them. The exiled Israelites, who we talked about last week, they were living this guarantee fulfilled. They were in that moment. They sit on the banks of a foreign land, wishing that they could yet again sing the songs of Zion, of what could have been and was once. The warning that that prophets had given over and over again is this judgment for sin that the people had been committing and continued to practice. But here's the thing. Judgment isn't the final word. Judgment isn't going to be the final word because just as soon as Moses finishes laying out these blessings and curses that God had given them in in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, he goes on to talk about what this, this re- restoration that can come if they repent. And that happens time after time again and the prophets as well. And it's because of this that where God speaks judgment, he also offers hope of salvation through repentance. I think that a lot of times we ended it at God is, is, is you know, judging us, right? But where God speaks judgment, he, off, he also offers hope of restoration, of salvation through repentance. Unlike all the other gods, little g gods, that are worshipped in the world, our God, our living God, always offers hope for restoration. If the Israelites, if they'll just repent from their sins, that means if, if they'll turn away from their ways and return to God, then he will restore them and that's because God always gives us a way out of the mess that we bring upon ourselves. It doesn't necessarily excuse us from the consequences that we can bring about, but it does give us a future that we could never attain on our own. And that is good news for them, the Israelites, but it's also good news for us. So I can only imagine that as they are sitting on these banks, as they're weeping, those who are faithful are remembering the promise of God that if they turn away, if they turn back, to God that he will restore them. It had to be the hope that they were hanging on to. I mean, we know what it's like. You gotta hang on to something. They're hanging on to that hope. They're waiting for that time to arrive. And just as promised, 70 years after the exile began, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied this, that all came to pass. The Lord stirred up in the heart of the newest nation in the region, Persia, to take control of Babylon. And just like the exodus from Egypt, the people are brought out of this foreign land and back into the land. See, God uses his hand to to move in the king of Persia, Cyrus, to release 
the people and returned them from exile. All this happened in the year 539 BC. Cyrus the Great is his name. I kind of like history, so there'll be some dates. You'll just have to follow along. Um, But Cyrus the Great, he declares this edict across the land that any people who had been exiled from, from those conquered nations, first it was Assyria, right? Controlled the region. Then it was Babylon. And now that Persia is there, he says, let's return back all of these exiles back to their homelands and we'll just have them, we'll control them from there. They would still live under the kingship, the rule of Persia, but God in, in his mercy and grace and in weird ways moves in this king of the world to move the people back to the land that they had been given. For the first time, God's people, uh, maybe it was just a remnant of God's people, are finally able to return to this land that had been promised to them. Now, the return, it happens in three waves over the course of about 140 years. And the first wave to return to Jerusalem uh, comes under the leadership of Zerubbabel about 538 BC with about 50,000 Israelites in tow. That is a large number of people trekking across uh, the land. But they find Jerusalem. They get there and they find Jerusalem in absolute ruins. The temple has been decimated thanks to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. There's just nothing left. Can you imagine their hearts? But they, they spend three years planning, and in 536, they lay the foundation of the temple again. The temple that had been destroyed finally has a foundation again. And then after 26 years of hard labor, there's finally a dwelling place where God's spirit can reside again in the land. Now, even though the temple had been rebuilt, doesn't necessarily mean that God's people are ready to worship again. So God raises up a man named Ezra, all right? Ezra was a teacher. He, he was the one who leads the second wave of Israelites back into the land in 457 BC with about 2,000 uh, Israelites there. Ezra, unlike many of the teachers of God's law before him, actually does this. He devotes himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is the very thing that the teachers before him had forgotten to do. And yet, Ezra devotes himself to this because he knows his calling. And he knows that it's not just for his benefit, but it's for the benefit of the people as well. It's for such a time as this. So just as the temple had been restored, now God's people could be reformed. So Ezra, he, he hits his knees in prayer. He's repenting and he's interceding on behalf of himself and, and the people of God. And he says this towards the end of his prayer in Ezra chapter 9. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again? Here we stand before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Ezra's prayer is so powerful that it moves men and women and children that are around him to begin to bitterly weep over their sin too. They've realized that that they need God. They need his forgiveness. They realize the gravity of their sin that has brought them to this place. And they, they ask God that he might come and transform them and change their hearts. 
So now we find that the temple has been rebuilt. The people have have realized their sin and, and they're being prepared for worship. But the city itself stands in absolute shambles. The walls, the gates of the city are are so torn apart. So God moves in the heart of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when he hears of, of the walls still in shambles, it brings him to tears and he weeps for days, knowing that his holy city where God's presence dwells, the city that had been promised to them, that it stands unfortified and open to outside forces. Now, Nehemiah had been a cupbearer of the king, and then this all happens in the year 444 B.C. That one was easy to remember. But this is 13 years after Ezra returns with his wave of exiles. So upon hearing of the walls and, and, and the city in shambles still, he calls out to God. And if you're in our reading plan, you're going to read this this week in Nehemiah chapter 1. Like Ezra, Nehemiah recognizes the sin of the people and is himself included. And I want you to recognize this language that he uses here. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I love that, it doesn't matter how far they are, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah recognizes how far they've strayed from God how they've, they've gone their own way and how they've been disobedient to God's commands. But he also remembers the promise that had been given to Moses, that if they repent, if they return to him, then, then he would bring them back from exile. And what Nehemiah, what Ezra, what they're experiencing is God's promise being fulfilled. So Nehemiah, he, he gets to work doing that very thing that God had placed on his heart to rebuild the walls and the gates around the city of Jerusalem. And even in spite of opposition from outside forces, they they press forward to rebuild and fortify the city. Now, I don't know about y'all, but this makes me really tired whenever I realize this. It took them 52 days to rebuild this wall and these gates. That is not a lot of time, and that is a lot of work. But God's temple's now been re-erected, The people are now back in the land, and the city has been fortified. Man, this is a time to celebrate, right? So that's what they do. They gather all the people together, and they bring them together to celebrate. And as they're assembled, Ezra gets up, and he begins to teach, begins to tell God, the law, the book of the law, to read from the book of the law of God to his people, something that hadn't been done in a very, very, very long time. Well, what quickly, you know, was a moment of celebration quickly turns to people are beginning to cry. And a lot. And the reason is, is because all they hear is rule after rule that they too have not been able to keep. That they too have broken, making them realize more and more what they were really like. That's because this, this book of the law was serving as a mirror on their own lives 
They identified with their ancestors and how far they had strong. Scripture works a lot like that with us as well. But the people realized that they hadn't been living as they should have, that they were like all the other nations. They were cruel and selfish. And all they could think was, I've blown it. We've blown it again. There's no way that God is going to bring us back from, from this again. Like, we've, we've done it again. He's going to punish us again, this time for sure. But fortunately, Ezra and some of the other teachers, they decided as a, as a way to combat the fear was to remember, which was something that God had, had said over and over again in the Old Testament, for them to remember his miraculous and wonderful things that he had done. And so that's what they do in Nehemiah chapter 9. They recount the stories of, of the marvelous things that God had done for his people and for the world. How he, he made the world. How he had chosen a people and given a special promise to Abraham. How he had rescued them from slavery. How he spoke through Moses and showed them how to live and how he brought them to a special land. How God had rescued them. No matter what. Time after time again, over and over again because of his never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreakable and always-forever love. That's who their God is. That's who our God is. And it's in that moment that the people decide yet again, we're going to renew this covenant and we're going to follow the Lord. If you've been following along, you know that some things never change, though. Unfortunately, one of the painful realities following that moment is that things don't really change. God's people quickly fall back into this life of sin that they had been living before then. Uh, they eventually slide back into the same attitudes and behaviors that led them to exile in the first place. And although God continually reminded Israel over and over again that they were loved and that they were rescued by grace, they only continued to exhibit this cold forgetfulness toward God. There's a chilling statement. It comes from Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament and also one of the last prophets to speak. And he says this in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 2 of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? I feel like that's me sometimes, right? Unfortunately. I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? It would seem that the people haven't changed much. But while the people haven't changed, neither has our God. Neither has our God. No matter where you pick up the story, no matter where you are in your own story, here's the truth is that God's relentless grace and pursuit of the world has never changed. God's relentless grace and pursuit of the world has never changed. Even though they forget, even though they remained in slavery under this, under this reign and uh, subjects of this foreign king and enslaved to sin, God hasn't stopped loving them. God hasn't stopped his plan of redemption for the world. God is sending a rescuer, a redeemer, one who will come and bring healing and hope and wholeness to all who would receive. That 
is the relentless and endless and never-changing love of our God. I love when names have meanings. I love picking these up and learning them. Listen to this. Ezra's name means help is here. And I love Nehemiah's name as well. God wipes away every tear. Help us here. God wipes away every tear. And even if the people hadn't seen it yet, even if they're still struggling with being faithful, God is at work. He's ready to do something new. One of the great things is that the story isn't over yet, as we're going to see as we continue in this series, but the stage has been set for the best part of the story to come, of God's plan coming, because someone's coming. Someone's coming. Someone's coming who will one day make all things right and new, who one day will take and wipe away every tear that we have, and who will come and rescue the world. And God is going to send his son, his one and only son, God in the flesh for us to not only show us more of who God is, but to free us from this sin that we have that entangles us so easily once and for all. The return of God's people from exile serves us as both a warning and a hope for us. Because we experience this, this reality of the already but not yet. Already but not yet. We, we long for the future return of Jesus when everything's going to be made right. When, when we will reside in the new heavens and the new earth. When we'll live under the reign of Jesus, finally free from death and suffering and darkness once and for all. But I think that we can identify with this idea of return as well. That we, we live in a time that requires faith and hope. But for us, this moment that we're in, it's a little bit different. Because we're on this side of the cross. We have the spirit that comes, God's presence with us. And friends, one of the greatest things in being in this word is we know how the story ends. We know how all this ends. We can be faithful today because Jesus the Messiah has come. He saves us, indwells us, and sustains us. Jesus reigns in heaven, and he will come again. We remember and we hope in God's faithfulness. So let us rest in the presence and the power of God made available to us through Jesus. And may we find that eternal rest that only he brings as he brings us home and as he makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, that in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our even meager best efforts that we can give, Lord. You continue to love us and pursue us with an everlasting love. And Lord, that no matter where we find ourselves, you want to take and bring us back. Lord, that even when we feel like we are at the furthest horizon, Lord, you, your hand is not too short to save. And so God, I ask this morning that we would know the hope that we would know the power, that we would know the story that you are writing. And Lord, that we would just open our arms, open our hearts, open our minds, open our whole selves to experience your healing and your hope and your wholeness that only you can bring. 
Jesus, you are so good and you are so worthy to be praised with all that we are. And we just pray that in this time of response, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of us uniquely, that we would know and feel your presence, Lord, with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand for our closing song. And as we uh, respond with this song, I just ask that you pray where you're at. You can, you can sit back down. You can turn, kneel at your chair. You can pray there. You can grab a friend, pray with them. Our altar rails are open. You can come down and pray up front. You can pray on your couch, however and wherever. Uh, we would love to, to just spend a time reflecting, seeing what it is that the Lord wants to say to us as we sing this song. Let's sing.